Hello, Hub listeners. Roger Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each and every Friday, we dig into some of the big issues and ideas that have shaped the news in the week that was, and we do this with my colleague, Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. Sean, um, a lot that we could talk about this week, but I've kind of taken an executive prerogative here, and I want to focus (laughs) on two things. Um, one, the prime minister's kind of, I think, extraordinary uh, remarks this week, earlier this week, on the war in Gaza. Uh, what's behind it? Uh, what are the implications of his statement? And then on the back half of the show, let's talk the fall economic statement, the next big statement that's going to come next week, setting out the legislative uh, spending agenda of the government going forward at a time of increasing political vulnerability. Let's try to think through what some of the highlights of that statement could be. But I want to begin with the Prime Minister's speech. It's not often that I react viscerally, and I'm going to try to contain myself a bit here and try to be fair in my analysis of what he said this week. But just to remind all of us, our listeners, of his words, because I think it's important to focus on the words and the language, let's play that statement now. The human tragedy that is unfolding in Gaza is heart-wrenching, especially the suffering we see in and around the Al-Shifa hospital. I have been clear that the price of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. Even wars have rules. All innocent life is equal in worth, Israeli and Palestinian. I urge the government of Israel to exercise maximum restraint. The world is watching on TV, on social media. We're hearing the testimonies of doctors, family members, survivors, kids who've lost their parents. The world is witnessing this killing of women and children, of babies. This has to stop. Okay, I hope we didn't just lose half of our listening audience there, because <laughs> I know many of you, like me, are sometimes triggered when we hear the, the, the PM uh, emoting as he emotes. But look, I do want to treat this seriously, Sean, because I think this is an important speech because what it reveals about a whole bunch of things, domestically, politically, the power of diaspora politics in the country, something we've talked about on this podcast for months now, but also just Canada's increasing kind of international, um, I don't know what you'd call it, like disharmony. We're out of sync with many of our traditional allies now on this war. And I think that has big implications for the country. But I want to hear your analysis first. What do you take away from this? And do you agree with the contention that this is this was an important 45 seconds for the country? Yeah. Um, I want to zero in on one word you used because I think it's important to emphasize with listeners. You called it a speech. Um these were prepared remarks. This wasn't uh, him speaking extraneously. This wasn't a a case where the the prime minister's words got ahead of him. 
you know, this was something conceived proactively by him and his team. This is the position he wanted to articulate uh, to Canadians and the country. Uh, I think that's the first point worth emphasizing. Uh, um, the, the second point, and then I'll turn it to you because it sounds like you have uh, uh, a lot to say. Uh, you mentioned disharmony uh, with Canada and uh, its allies around the world. I would call it isolation. Uh, we are increasingly isolated, not merely with respect to the war in Gaza, but on a wide range of issues. You know, there's reporting just in the past day or so, uh, Rudyard, that um, at the APEC summit in San Francisco over the past couple of days, the Prime Minister of Canada had been uh, isolated from major conversations between the U.S. and China, um, a, a, a lot of focus on the future of the Asia-Pacific region. Um, the prime minister and his government have increasingly situated Canada in a way that puts us offside our major allies on some of the biggest questions uh, facing the world. And, you know, that self-evidently can't be in the long-run interests of the country. Mm -hmm. Well said. I mean, I'm going to be a little more visceral in my analysis. I think it's those final words at the end, which both, you know, disappointed and alarmed me, this idea of uh, asserting that the Israeli government and the IDF are killing women, children, and babies. That is to engage in what for me has been both a wake-up call and a, and a huge disappointment of the last, you know, four and a half, five weeks. This this lazy moral equivalency that is constantly being created between Israel and Hamas. Hamas went into Israel with the intention to kill women, children, and babies. And they did it in the hundreds. Over 1,300 Israeli citizens murdered in their, in their homes with their families, before their families. Israel has gone into Gaza with a full sanction of international law to remove a clear and present danger to the Israeli state. There's no debate on this. International law allows states to do this. And the genocidal attack of Hamas on Israel, surely by any objective observer's eyes, would reach the standard to allow Israel to use its rights under international law to remove Hamas as a military and political force in Gaza. They have gone into that conflict with the intention to kill Hamas fighters and militants. They have taken all the steps, and I think more based on a lot of reporting I've heard, to try to minimize civilian casualties. Yes, many thousands of civilians have died. This is a dense urban environment. It's probably one of the toughest environments to wage war that one could, could think of. But intent matters. And for the prime minister to, one, create the, the false equivalency, and then second, not a moment of those remarks, to chastise Hamas to bring to global attention the attention of Canadians that if Hamas releases the hostages today and unconditionally surrenders to the IDF, this war is over and the civilian deaths stop. He didn't make one mention of Hamas and its complicity in inviting this war on the people of Gaza, 
causing the immense humanitarian suffering and death through their actions, Sean. This, to me, was an incredibly bold set of remarks. Am yeah, I wrong? It, no, it reminds me uh, of, a, of an old Cold War formulation that Bill Buckley used to use. He, would, he said that, um, that a, the false equivalency between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was like saying that a man who pushes an old lady into the path of a bus is the moral equivalent to the man who pushes the old lady out of the way of the bus because they both push little old ladies around. Um, and maybe the, the present uh, formulation, maybe Hamas is targeting women and children while Israel is trying to avoid women and children and somehow they're moral equivalents because they're both concerned with women and children. Um, and so I think your point is, is well taken and I'm glad you, you made it. Um, you mentioned though in your introduction um, the diaspora politics at the backdrop of the government's kind of seesawing on these issues over the past month or so. And, um, you know, it was it had me thinking uh, this morning because I knew you wanted to talk about these issues. If Lloyd Axworthy was the foreign affairs minister, uh, old liberal uh, uh, foreign affairs voice and kind of leading liberal thinker on international issues, it's quite plausible that the government would have taken a less um, hawkish view and uh, a less supportive view of Israel than I would have been inclined to, to, to take. But it would have been rooted in a conception of interests and principles. What's striking to me, Rudyard, is that you just get the sense um, that the prime minister doesn't think that Canada has any interests or underlying values at stake here. Um, it is he is articulating Canada's position on, in my mind, one of the most um, clear kind of moral tests of Western civilization in a long time. And he's doing it using a kind of cold cost-benefit calculus about domestic politics. Um, as far as as far as the, the the formulation of Canadian foreign policy is concerned, we we don't have any national interests. We don't have any underlying values that ought to guide um, Canadian policy and its pronouncements. We have the Liberal Party's domestic political interests, and that seems to be all that you can really kind of draw a, a line through in terms of the various positions that the prime minister and the foreign affairs minister have taken since October 7th. And I think um, that's unbecoming of a G7 country um, and a country that has a proud history, actually, of, of taking principled stands or interest-based stands on similar moral tests over the, over the past 150 years. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, that's the other dimension of this. It puts us offside with our Anglosphere allies, right? The United Kingdom, the United States, Australia, all of which have chosen to support Israel's contention, which I think is just self-evident that this is a struggle against um, an ideology of death, of destruction, uh, that is completely antithetical to our values. And this struggle, this ideology is unfolding in a part of the world that is high stakes, is high stakes for Israel, is high stakes for the Palestinians. There, there's, no, there's nothing redeeming about Hamas or an idea that Hamas could perpetuate itself into the future 
as some kind of legitimate political actor in the region. So what's happening, Sean, and what I, I worry about this, you know, it's the fallout of, with, with India it, that we've recently had is that we are getting pushed so far out of our, our normal ambit of, you know, we were the power that was instrumental in the creation of NATO um, after the Second World War. We fought in the Korean War alongside uh, the United States. We have a, a long history of allyship with our fellow Anglo democracies. And now we're starting to evidence, you know, a different set of, of language, of values, of a view of the world that is, I think, contrary to our own civilizational heritage and the principles and ideas to which we should be committed to, but it, it furthers the isolation of Canada. It furthers the case of anyone else that out there who is skeptical about our value as an international partner, whether it be defense security or uh, our economic heft. All of this is under question. We sit in the G7, frankly, as a charity case these days, let's be honest about it. And I'm just not so sure how long our allies are going to tolerate not only our stated indifference by this prime minister to ever meeting our NATO defense requirements as a portion of GDP or our, you know, uh, ad hominem attacks on on Israel in this case and being offside with our allies on messaging where they're having to run significant domestic challenges of their own in the United Kingdom. Joe Biden in the United States, Michigan, there are places where he's paying yes. a heavy price. Yes. Yet we're not doing that. And if we think that there aren't repercussions for this, in fact, we, if we think that these repercussions haven't already been banked with a lot of our allies, well, guess what? They have. And I think it's just a matter of time before the bill is served to us and we're pushed even further out and who's left? Who whose company are we with at that point? I don't know. Like who, Europe? Do you want to be part of Europe? A sclerotic, declining, uh, you know, fractious conglomeration of nation states who've never really been able to formulate a coherent defense or security policy? Is that where we want to put all of our eggs? Scary, Sean. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Um, I don't have much to to add to that, really, um, because I, I think uh, what what you set out is so compelling. We'll have to find ways to debate more on this podcast, won't we, Roger? <laughs> the, the only thing I would add, um, you know, I would encourage listeners to keep an eye on one other shoe to drop in terms of this this conversation we're having about the politicization of foreign policy and the extent to which it contributes to isolation. And that is the forthcoming Liberal Party attacks on Donald Trump and um, in the context of their um, of their opposition or negative campaign vis-a-vis uh, -vis Pierre Polyev. I think, I think that they won't be able to resist the temptation in trying to uh, harm Polyev's standing with the Canadian public uh, to make a pretty explicit case that a vote for Polyev is effectively a vote for a Trumpian candidate um, in the prime minister's office. And, you know, it may be, it may even be a, a political strategy or a set of political tactics that works. We know, for instance, that uh, the Canadian public has a, a pretty strong aversion uh, to the former president. But, but um, there are certain 
things that have to transcend short-term political interests. And I think amongst those would be um, nurturing and cultivating and protecting uh, Canada's economic and security relationship with the United States and turning a former president and um, someone who quite plausibly could be the next president into a political wedge um, uh, could be highly destructive. And if I was betting today, I think we'll see a lot of that in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, this is a very dangerous moment. It's a moment where the floor has fallen out under a government in terms of popular support, and they are beginning to burn the furniture to keep the lights on. They did it with the carbon tax last week. They've done it this week with Canada's uh, stance vis-a-vis Israel and this war. You know, who knows? Uh, is it the sofa, the Chesterfield, the dining room table? Uh, what gets thrown onto this bonfire of vanities to try to save uh, a government that by every measure of public opinion across the country is done. It's done like dinner. Well, look, we're going to come back after this break and talk about the fall economic statement. It's next week. And no doubt a government hoping in Ottawa, this is a chance to reset with some new messages, but the backdrop, the fiscal backdrop is ugly. We had some important analysis of this in the hub this week. We'll get into that for you right after this break. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday compilation of our best writing from the previous week again free for you right now at www.thehub.ca welcome back to the hub roundtable i'm rudyard griffiths the executive director of the hub i'm joined by sean spear our editor at large well, Sean, the fall economic statement is up next week. It's kind of like a mini budget. It happens every year at this time. Trevor Toome had a terrific piece, as always, for us on the fiscal backdrop and the worsening picture that Ottawa now faces in terms of debts and deficits. What are the some of the key parts of Trevor's really astute analysis that you think uh, Hub listeners need to keep an eye on as we listen, no doubt, to the the dulcet tones of our finance minister announcing billions of more grants and funding for all kinds of different causes and issues across the country next Tuesday. Yeah, it's a good segue from your comments wrapping up the last um, part of the episode when you talked about uh, what are the other uh, parts of of you know Canadian public policy and Canadian national interests that the government may be prepared to trade off. Uh, in the name of of trying to preserve its political standing, and I think Canada's fiscal picture <laughs> and bottom line may be the next on the chopping block. Uh, as Trevor outlined in in uh, his must read article for us, there's a couple of big developments here that people should be looking for uh, when it comes to next Tuesday's fall economic statement. Probably the most important, in a way, Roger, is that um, after the pandemic, we saw a pretty significant drop in the year over year in the size of the deficit, which was expected, of course, because a lot of that pandemic spending 
uh, was supposed to be temporary. Um, but what we're seeing in the current fiscal year uh, is that that downward trajectory is stopped. And in fact, uh, what we what we probably will see on Tuesday is the deficit climb up again um, to as high, uh, Trevor speculates, as $56 billion, which would be, um, you know, double, more than double any uh, size of any uh, deficit that the government ran prior to the pandemic. And to put it in some context, on a cyclically adjusted basis, it would be the largest deficit as a share of the economy since the mid-1990s. This is serious stuff. Uh, At a time when the economy is still growing, it's not growing as fast as we like, but it's still growing. And in fact, uh, we're trying to get inflation under, under control, and yet the government continues to run this loose fiscal policy mm-hmm. um the consequence of course uh, and then i'll turn it over to you is uh rising debt payments as a share of government spending one of the most extraordinary numbers in trevor's piece is that in the month of august roger um the government of canada recorded the single largest uh, monthly interest payment on the debt stock since at least 1995 and possibly ever so when we talk about fiscal policy in Canada, there, there's a tendency to have all of the usual caveats and conditions. It's not as bad as the 90s. You know, we're better than a lot of our peers on a pretty forgiving curve. Debt interest payments as a share of, of revenue or the size of the economy is lower than it's been at its historic peaks. You know, I, I'm blah, 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 blah. I'm prepared to acknowledge all of those various caveats. But you those caveats only work so long as they, they work, right? I mean, that's what people were saying through the 1970s and the 1980s, and then boom, you hit a wall. Um, and so, you know, are we moving slowly towards a wall? Where is the wall? I don't know. Um, but I think um, if Trevor Toome, who is one of the most kind of dispassionate empiricists that I know, says, you know, wait a second, guys, things are moving in the wrong direction, I stand up and take notice. Yeah. So what my takeaway from Trevor's excellent piece and what we should look for next week is, you know, these deficits are so big now for, as you say, over 40 billion, double what they were pre COVID. We're out of COVID. Uh, They're structural. They're, they are, they have embedded themselves in terms of the government spending that is now working through different program priorities and departments and agencies. You know, this is now, baked into the system. So it's really hard, as we know, historically, to begin to undo that because every one of those programs and priorities has a political cost attached to it. So my concern is both the increasingly structural nature of the deficits and the sclerotic economic growth. So yes, the United States has a serious deficit problem, but they have GDP growth this year, maybe three to four times what Canada will have. So if you have continuing economic growth, then your deficits are much more manageable, even if they're high. But we know from the OECD and even our own finance department in previous budgets, Canada's growth prospects going forward are lousy. We are seeing this country, uh, court now the repercussions of a a lost decade or two in terms of productivity gains in our economy. Uh, We have government capital, public capital, 
crowding out private capital increasingly throughout Canada. Foreign direct investment down significantly. Taxes are already towards the upper band of the OECD average. We cannot tax more. Um, the United States could inst inst institute an HST. I think there would be a riot <laughs> that would make January 6th look like a state fair. But, I mean, they could institute a, uh, a VAT tax and deal with all of their debt and deficit issues in one fell swoop. We've already done those things. So, I, I, Sean, I think the wall is worrying because the wall feeds back on the present. And as soon as bond markets and and people begin to realize that the wall is coming, it jumps forward because it affects the decisions you're going to make now. Are you going to buy long-term Canadian debt? If you think that this government now has a structural deficit that it can't and it won't deal with. So yeah, this is really serious stuff. Let me take up um, let me take up some of the points you made there because it 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 speaks to something that Amanda Lang and I spoke about in the latest episode of In Conversation with Amanda Lang, which will be out by the time um, this discussion is. Um, and it speaks to the kind of structural nature of the, of the deficit. It seems to me, Rudyard, one of the challenges we have is that we have, we're running a fiscal policy using Stephen Harper's tax rates and Justin Trudeau's spending preferences. Um, the, the government is bringing in about 13, 13.5% of GDP in revenue, and it's consistently spending now, outside of the pandemic, about 15 or so percent of GDP. Um, and so I think we have to have a reckoning, don't we? Are we prepared to raise taxes to bring the revenue in alignment with the demands uh, uh, that we have on the government? Or are we prepared to reset our expectations on the size of the scope of government to bring them into alignment with how much we're prepared to pay. But in the absence of that kind of reckoning, what is going to happen is that the, the, we're going to continue to accumulate debt. Um, the, the share of spending dedicated to um, managing that debt is going to rise. And th there's going to be two things. One, a kind of enormous opportunity cost at a time when we ought to be prioritizing spending on our military, spending on, um, you know, any number of issues, R&D, the types of things that can actually boost economic growth. It's going to be um, um, a growing share dedicated to just servicing past debt. Uh, and then, of course, to your point, the cost of that debt is going to rise um, as bond markets start to uh, demand higher premiums. And so that's how you end up in uh, mm -hmm. something of a, of a, of a kind of spiral. And so, yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. Closing the gap between Stephen Harper's tax rates and Justin Trudeau's spending preferences uh, is, you know, at the core of how we ultimately get out of, uh, out of the, the kind of fiscal um, challenge that we, we presently find ourselves in. Yeah. And just think that there are a lot of signs that we could be in recession right now. Um, the economy has slowed significantly under these interest hikes. So yes, inflation may well come down, which could allow the central bank to stimulate the economy through some interest rate cuts. But every indication is that rates are not going back down to the zero bound. The government of Canada has indicated, the finance ministry, that it, it will be borrowing debt on the front end of the curve. So shorter duration debt, which is more... Uh, expensive because it's closer to the 
the overnight rate, which is very high right now at approximately 5%. So our debt financing costs are going to explode. And yeah, they may come down a little bit in the future, but they ain't returning to what they were for the last decade and a half. Now imagine our tax revenues start to dry up because the country is in recession. And imagine you're starting the recession with this kind of crazy counter-cyclical spending during a period of high employment, low unemployment. What the heck does you know, fiscal expenditures, counter-cyclical spending look like during a recession when you're trying to stimulate through increased you know, fiscal outlays because you're trying to prime the so-called Keynesian pump. So this gets crazy. You start coming off this super high baseline going into the, into the recession, and then you get hit with the double whammy that either you can't stimulate or you do stimulate, and the deficits blow out even further while the tax revenues you know, decline. I mean, that suggests, again, to me, that the wall is closer, not further out for Canada. And we could be seeing the outlines of it in our headlights in the next 12 to 18 months. Oh, Smokes, Rudyard, we need to wrap up this conversation with some optimism, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) You you find it for me, brother, Sean. You you know, uh, give me something to be optimistic (laughs) about. Well, maybe one way to do it is... uh... Um, to, to talk a bit about this new exciting series that we're about to launch at the Hub that actually is related to the uh, forthcoming uh, fall economic statement. Um, five years ago, next Tuesday, the Trudeau government launched its um, major program to support um, the news media sector in Canada, of course, in the face of declining advertising revenue and all of the dislocation that is, was causing for uh, the, the industry. Um on the fifth anniversary of that package, the nearly $600 million, there are now new demands uh, for the finance minister to essentially augment um, those measures. Uh, we'll, we'll wait to see if they do appear in Tuesday's fall economic statement. But in parallel uh, with the lobbying and advocacy and everything going on, trying to increase uh, public subsidies for the news media, we're... Uh, on the precipice of launching a major new series that we're calling the future of news that takes a far less pessimistic view about the market's capacity to, in effect, solve for some of the structural challenges that uh, has sent uh, its its lobbyists to Ottawa in search of reprieve um, after it's called rent seeking, Sean. It's called rent. <laughs> okay, let's just call it what it is. <laughs> after two and a half years at the hub, and you know, and also interacting with other um, uh, startup organizations. So I think there's a there's a reason for optimism. Uh, what what comes out of this process of creative destruction is going to look um, different um, than the the industry as it's been configured for you know the better part of several decades. Um, the mix of models is going to be more diverse um the the types of voices that are are are, uh given standing in the market uh are going to be different and and i argue more diverse um but i in a way the future of news project does a couple of things one you know tries to bring different ideas and voices to bear on on the role for public policy to help in this transition um from the current challenges facing the sector uh, to a, a more sustainable industry, but two, um, and this is something I know that that 
the two of us feel strongly about push back a bit against the the, the pessimism that is so inherent in so much of this policy debate. Yeah, Sean, I'm really looking forward to the series, The Future of News. I want to thank our partners who have helped make this possible, Meta and our other foundation sponsors. It's really, again, through their funding, we get to do all these things here at the Hub that you know, you're not going to see in the mainstream press because they're not commercial. We're doing this because we think this is a really interesting public policy debate and discussion to unpack. How can you have news fashioned as a public good without the heavy hand of government uh, weighing on the industry? And I think fueling, frankly, a lot of the growing distrust in media, mainstream media and otherwise. You know, government funding comes with strings attached. If you don't believe that, I got some swamp land in Florida. I'd love to sell you this weekend. But look, that's going to be a wrap for the show. Sean, thanks for coming on the program. Check out the future of news. It kicks off next uh, tomorrow, the 18th of November, with a, a joint uh, opinion piece by Sean and me setting out the project. Then we're going to have lots of different voices um, piling on uh, through our viewpoint series and also on uh, our podcast dialogue series that Sean will be hosting. So check out the future of news and thank you for joining the hub Roundtable for this week's discussion. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support, and we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski-Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening. <laughs>